0: Uh, Page 5 of your worship guide, you have uh, the sermon title and the passage, 2 Thessalonians 3, this last little part of this letter, uh, verses 16 through 18, so you can open your Bibles to to that portion of the Bible. Uh, And then a two-point outline today, don't get your hopes up, I will still preach for 40 or 50 minutes as always. Uh, and then these reflection questions. I tell you all this a lot, but please do make use of the reflection questions. Uh, I guess what I mean by that is uh, read them now, um, uh, but maybe more helpful would be to take them home and or type it on your contemplation gears turning. Uh, make use of the, those questions and, um, and you really you know think about uh, these, these questions as they apply to this passage. This is what God wants you to really think about and wrestle with and um, I can't stress this enough, you, you will be so benefited by, by reading scripture and deeply contemplating it and, and thinking thoroughly about it you know, on your own. It's great that we do that here this morning together, uh, but to do that every day, uh, to get a dose of the word and to know that this is God speaking to you, that's, that's critical. So I'm going to invite you to stand now as I read this last little portion of Second Thessalonians chapter 3. So join me there, look at that as I read it aloud for us. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times and in every way. The Lord be with you all. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. This is the sign of genuineness in every letter of mine. It is the way I write. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. God, before we spend... Half an hour or so looking at this passage, we really do require you to give us eyes to see and ears to hear what you're saying. And we need you most of all to give us hearts that are receptive, that are hungry for what you say is the primary bread that we live on. We live on every word that comes from the mouth of God. So give us appetites for that. And we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So there's a lot of talk about peace in this passage. And I was I was thinking about peace this past week, I realized that peace kind of feels like magic to us. I think of magicians and people who can do magic tricks. We're intrigued with peace. Uh, we, we don't really know how it works. We know that there are people who can do it. And when we see it, invariably we ask, how did you do that? How did you, you actually pull off peace? How do you have peace? How does it work? There, there are these external things that sort of enthrall us. You know, magic and peace, they don't originate with us. We don't summon peace from somewhere deep within ourselves. Um, it prevails upon us. That's the first thing you have to understand about the Lord of peace and how peace works. The Lord of peace prevails upon you. And if you experience peace, it's not because you have this natural, it's that God, the Lord of peace, has prevailed upon you with his peace. So perhaps some of you are familiar with the name David Blaine. Show of hands, have you heard of David Blaine? Okay, great. A lot of you. You can YouTube David Blaine later today. That'd be pretty fun. Uh, David Blaine is the Lord of street magic. Okay, So you don't have to buy a ticket and go to a theater and sit in a seat and, and watch David Blaine perform on a stage. He comes to you. He takes the initiative. right? He prevails upon you. You're out running errands. You're just going about your normal everyday life. And then this magician shows up and he prevails upon you with his magic. Which means he's super accessible because he meets you where you are. Again, you don't have to pay to go see him. He comes to you. And it's captivating. Even if you're not really a magic person. In every experience where David Blaine comes to someone on the street and performs his magic, they are riveted. You you can't not be enthralled with what he's doing. You, You will be invested. You will be attentive. You will wonder, how does he do this? And, and you will be involved. It's not just him doing the trick. He's going, to, he's going to envelop you into what he's doing. You're going to become a participant in the magic that he's doing. And it's never-ending. As you watch him do magic tricks, you think, when does it stop? It's like he always has another trick he can do. He always has something else that he can do to wow you and to mesmerize you and to cause you to be curious. And that's how peace works. That's how Jesus, the Lord of peace, operates in your life. He initiates... He's not saying, you buy a ticket and come to heaven and you watch me wow you. He says, no, I'm going to come to you. I'm going to be born on your level. I'm going to be a kid who grew up in this podunk village called Nazareth, where the reputation is nothing good could come from there. I'm going to meet you in your wretchedness and in your weakness. I'm going to take the initiative. And the way Jesus operated and the way he taught, it was inescapably captivating. Even the opponents of Jesus would say there is something extraordinary going on with him. He teaches as one with authority. His style is different. His approach is is very supernatural. We've never encountered anything like him. And he insists on always being with you. Jesus, the last thing he says before he ascends into heaven, he looks at his friends and he says, I will be with you always. My presence and the peace that comes with that is never ending. And so in verse 16 when it says the Lord of peace will give you peace at all times and in every way, that's how you need to think about it. And this is key. This is critical. If you're with David Blaine, the street magician, you have magic. You understand? Like you're not conjuring it up. God's not giving you a command to just manufacture it on your own. He's saying, if you have me in your life, you have peace, right? You are being drawn into it. You're being a, a, a celebrant of it, a partaker of it. You have a share in it, and that's how it works with Jesus. Think about that story when Jesus is on the boat with his disciples. Remember this story in the Gospels? The disciples, uh, many of them are fishermen, so they've been out on, on the lake many, many a time, and they've probably encountered inc- inclement weather from time to time, and they're out in the middle of the lake, and a big storm just crops up out of nowhere. And they are panicking. This this is a very intense storm, unlike anything they've ever experienced. And they are terrified. And so they go to Jesus. He's asleep in the boat during the storm. And they wake him up. And they say, don't you care? I mean, this is terrifying. This is scary. We we need peace. Our circumstances are overwhelming us. And we need peace. And so Jesus wakes up. And he looks at the storm. He he tells the storm, settle down. And the storm obeys. And then do you remember what Jesus says to his friends? He says, why were you so panicked? Why were you so afraid? Don't don't you know if I'm with you, you have peace? What's Jesus saying? He's saying, I am peace. If I'm with you, you have peace. And Jesus says, not only am I willing to be with you, but I insist on being with you. And this is so critical that we get this. Peace is not pleasant circumstances. You know, having life sort of under control and all figured out and it's quiet and it's predictable, that's not peace. And peace is not a state of mind. It's not this sort of transcendent, you know, I'm, I'm above all the stress of life because I've tapped into some nirvana state of mind. That's not what peace is. Peace, simply put, is Jesus with you. That's, that's the bedrock of your peace. God wanting to be with you and insisting on being with you. And and here's another thing you have to understand is Jesus won't sell you his peace so that you can have it in your own individualistic, isolated way. You can't purchase peace from Jesus and use it on your own terms. Jesus says, I, the Lord of peace, insist on you experiencing peace with me. You, You can't separate it out. You can't take it and do it on your own. Being with me is synonymous with you having peace. So let's think about how someone like Jacob, this historical figure, this character in the Old Testament, the book of Genesis. Think about how a guy like Jacob would have experienced God's peace. First of all, you have to understand Jacob's experiences and his circumstances uh, were... I think it's safe to say, antithetical to peace. They were about as antithetical as they could possibly be. For example, uh, Jacob made some pretty intense enemies in his life. Jacob, uh, his number one enemy perhaps, you'd say it was his brother Esau. He, he had acted uh, sort of manipulatively toward his brother, and his brother did not take kindly to that. And so his brother actually took a vow to kill him. And so he had reasons to feel paranoid, not, not necessarily a peaceful vibe you get in that brotherly relationship. And because of that, subsequently, uh, Jacob was sort of a nomad. So you, you'd look at the way he lived and you'd say, well, he doesn't really have a lot of reasons to feel you know, stable and at peace because he's kind of moving around a lot. He's not, he's not a guy who really ever settles down. And then he has to deal with a lot of stressful relationships. I don't know about y'all, but, but the thing that causes me the most sort of conflict and turmoil, like the antithesis of peace is relational drama and dysfunction and stress. And Jacob had a ton of that. Jacob, he had all this tension with his boss slash uncle. He had tension and stress with his wives. You heard me right, wives, plural. Uh, just, just, Just that in and of itself tells you that's stressful. You know, having multiple spouses, not a great idea. And he had a tension and he had stress with his sons. And so you take all of that, and, and you get to this one moment in Jacob's life where he's walking into a very awkward, very tense meeting with his brother the next morning. And he is, of course, very, very nervous, because this is the same brother who vowed to kill him. So he's stressed out, and on this particular evening, he encounters the Lord. And it's not a casual conversation. It's not the Lord giving him you know, tips on how to you know, breathe and experience tranquility. Here's what happens. The Lord comes to Jacob and uh, they wrestle all night long. And in this wrestling with God, Jacob learns how peace works. And he comes to this this realization that in order to really have stability and confidence in peace, he's going to have to cling to God. That's how peace works. You knowing that apart from God, You cannot do anything. You can't experience peace. You can't have any good thing. Clinging to God is the critical component of experiencing peace. And Jacob says that. He clings to God and he's like, you have to bless me. You have to be with me or else I have nothing. Another character in the Old Testament, a guy named King David, he had a similar experience with peace. David, King David, if you read um, his poetry and if you read about his life in First and Second Samuel, you'll see that he's not a man of natural tranquility. He's, he's a very emotional fellow. So he didn't just have this naturally peaceful disposition. And so it begs the question, how did David, this man after God's own heart, this, this king of God's people, how did he experience peace? Well, if you go and you read his journal entries, which we call the Psalms, you'll see in in great detail how peace prevailed upon David. How, How did he, in specific ways, encounter and experience the peace of God? Well, he wrestled with God. He had these really intense, brutally candid conversations with God. Knocked down, drag out kinds of dialogue with God. And the whole point of those conversations, the the ultimate objective is to know God. Not know about God, not have theological information stored up and, and accumulated that's about God, but knowing God experientially, relationally, relying on God, and realizing more than anything that God wants that with you. He wants this relationally rich, rigorous experience because that's a real relationship. And he wants to be with you. Raise your hand if you've seen the movie What About Bob. Yeah, okay, most of you. If you haven't seen this movie, shame on you. You need to see it. It's one of the best movies of all time. Um, Here's the thing when you ponder peace, you need to think about it in terms of Dr. Leo Marvin's relationship with Bob Wiley. All right, let me explain. First of all, you are Dr. Leo Marvin. And you think, wow, he's successful and he's wealthy and that's cool. He's he's a competent fellow. Okay, before you start patting yourself on the back, here's the angle that I want you to think about yourself as Dr. Leo Marvin. You're arrogant, right? You're proud. You're sort of, you have issues with, uh, what is his son? son, Siggy, right? You you sort of struggle to connect. You have relational uh, tension. You have conflict with your neighbors. You're nervous about your performances in life, right? All of these things that you want to achieve and and receive accolades for. you got Good Morning America coming to your house, and you're nervous about that. Okay, so that's you. And then this guy shows up in your life. His name's Bob. And he doesn't just sort of show up on the periphery of your life. He prevails upon you. He dominates your life. And his ways are not your ways. He's completely unorthodox, in terms of how you think of orthodoxy. He's very, very different from you. But here's the thing, he makes everyone around him happier, and they laugh more, and they, and they have more joy. And you have to learn how to embrace him because at the very least, he's not gonna leave. He's not gonna leave. And you have to reckon with the fact that he's moving in and, and he's gonna be with you forever, right? He's gonna marry into the family. He's going to be around forever. And so you cannot have peace apart from Him. That's your relationship with Jesus. Jesus, His ways aren't your ways. He says in John 14, I, I'm here to give you my peace, but we can all agree that my peace is not the kind of peace you expected. It's not the kind of peace that the world would talk about or the world would offer you. It's an otherworldly kind of peace. And you have to come to grips with the fact that my peace as weird, as unorthodox, and strange as it may seem to you, that is the peace that will prevail on your life. And that's how you will experience peace. And it's an acquired taste. It's something you're going to have to learn to sort of get, uh, get in the flow of and experience it, not on your terms, but on tr- Jesus' terms. And on that note of it being not what we expected or counterintuitive, that leads to the second point. God insists that His peace the peace of the Lord of peace, it doesn't just involve him, but it involves other people. And specifically, it involves people like Paul. Okay, so look at verse 17. Paul says, I am writing this greeting to you in my own hand. Yes, this is a letter, if you go back to the beginning from Silas, Timothy, and Paul, but really specifically, there's the primary flavor and authorship of Paul. So what he says, this is the sign of genuineness in every letter I write. This is my style. This is my approach. This is the way that I communicate with y'all. And this is really, really fascinating because we tend to think of peace as an individualistic thing. It's an internal thing. But the Bible says, no, peace is a community thing. God says your peace consists of you knowing Jesus and you living life with those whom Jesus chooses to put in your sphere of relationships. So if, if you think peace is me alone, it's quiet, and, and I have a cup of coffee, and I just, I just sort of feel tranquil, it doesn't exclude that. But not, that's not the primary picture of peace. Peace is inescapably communal. Communal. Now let me clarify, if we, if we made a pie chart of peacefulness, solitude, some time, being by yourself, that, that would be part of the pie chart. It'd be one sliver at least. So Jesus, for example, he made time for solitude. There are these moments, like in Matthew chapter 14, where Jesus tells his disciples, I need a break. Y'all are great. I love you, but I'm going to need some alone time. And so he puts him on the boat. He says, y'all go ahead and start paddling across the lake. I'll dismiss the crowds who are following me around. And Jesus makes it a point to go up on a mountain by himself to pray. And it stresses the fact that he's there alone. He's praying to his father alone. But that begs the question, why? Most primarily, why did Jesus take advantage of this solitary time up on the mountain? He did this so that he could reflect and recharge for the more prevailing peace that is experienced in community. Because you have to understand this is the essence of who Jesus is. Jesus is the Son of God. So from all eternity, Jesus has experienced the peace of the Trinitarian community. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost have forever experienced this unfathomable peace and unity and harmony in in their oneness and jesus says it's not enough that i have experienced that i want to marry myself to you to to you wretched people who are great at division and backbiting and blame shifting i want to save you from all of that toxicity and i want to envelop you into not just a relationship with me as your husband but because i am united to the father and the spirit I want to envelop you in the relationship of the Trinity. This is staggering, y'all. If you go home today and read John 17, this is what Jesus asks for. This is what he passionately prays for. He says, I want all of these people not just to come into heaven, not, not just to qualify or to make it into heaven, you know, to be on par with all of the heavenly creatures and the angels. He says, no, I want them to sit in judgment over the angels. I want them to be enveloped into the eternal oneness of the Trinity. So, Jesus is essentially communal, and he wants to bring you in on that. And that starts now. We get foretastes of that now. And we get to participate in that now. And that that passion of Christ to pull us into this rich community, it involves people like Paul. So first of all, Paul is a real person. You ever hung out with a real person? It's, it's hard, right? I don't know about y'all, but hanging out with dogs, for example, that's easy. This is why we love our dogs more than people, right? Because they are, they're intrinsically loyal. I mean, sure, they make a mess in the house sometimes. They chew on stuff. They go potty on the carpet. But they, you know, they're just so endearing. They give you the puppy dog eyes. They're easy. But people, people are a pain in the rear sometimes. It's hard to do life with people, isn't it, right? And Paul is a real person. Yeah, he's an apostle, but he's, he even says, he's a sinner. He's a big sinner. He's a wretched man. And so at, at a minimum, if you do life with real people, they're going to step on your toes. They're going to say things that seem insensitive to you. They're going to hurt you. They're, they're going to not share your preferences. They're not going to do things the way you wish they would do them. It's going to be complicated. It's going to be messy. It's going to be dramatic. It's going to be dysfunctional. That's the, that's the definition of relationships on planet Earth. And more than that, as you think about Paul as a particular personality, there's no getting around the fact that he is specifically a polarizing kind of character. I mean, look at what Paul just said in this letter. Last week, we looked at this passage. He just said, for example, I... I command you and I commend to you uh, the example of working night and day. That doesn't sound restful. That doesn't sound peaceful. That's not my definition or picture of peace. And then you read about Paul's life. Like when you read through the book of Acts, you find that it's not uncommon. Wherever Paul goes, there are mobs who oppose him. There are riots breaking out. This is not necessarily as as percentage-wise, it's not as much the case when you follow guys like Timothy around. What is it about Paul that is so provocative that there are riots breaking out in every town where he goes to preach the gospel? He's a hard guy to get along with. I'm not so sure if Paul visited East Charlotte Pres, that we would really like him so much. You know, some churches actually did say very clearly, you know, we don't really, we don't really get good, peaceful vibes from Paul. <laughs> we have a hard time with Paul. Impression that this is a very strained relationship. It's not just that Paul is a real person. It's he's a polarizing person. And here we have him. In, and I'm talking to you all about peace. And I'm involved in that. As a side note, you know, Paul would have said something similar to the church in Corinth. What he says here to the church in Thessalonica in verse 17. You know, this is me. I, I write this letter with sincerity and genuineness. This is the way I write. It's, it's me, your brother Paul. It's funny. When you, when you actually kind of look at the letters from Paul to the church in Corinth, you quickly come to find that apparently we don't have all the letters. We, we have two in the New Testament, but we don't have all of them. And I have a hunch that the reason we don't have some of those letters is because the second the, the Corinthian church checked the mailbox and saw that it was from Paul, they just chucked it in the fire. They're like, I am not reading another letter from that man. That guy has burned his bridge. I don't want anything to do with him. He hurt me. I don't really believe him that he is trying to work with me for my joy. I've had enough of this Paul character. And nevertheless, time after time, all throughout Scripture, God says when you belong to a body, when you do life together with your brothers and sisters in Christ, you are participating in the peace of God. And I know what some of you are thinking You're thinking, but aren't communities where conflict crops up? I mean, bodies of people are where conflict happens, not peace. And it is a mystery. I would invite you to to really imaginatively inhabit the story of Joseph, another Old Testament character. You can read about him in the book of Genesis as well. Joseph, as you are probably aware, was sold into slavery by his brothers. So I I would say that qualifies for dysfunction, relational turmoil, they have some baggage, they have some history they need to work through. And what you come to find when you read about the story of Joseph and his brothers, especially as you get to the end of the book of Genesis, and you see that Joseph and his brothers have reconciled, and they are living together in this region of Egypt called Goshen, you come to find that peace is certainly not a philosophy. It's not this transcendent state of mind. It's doing life together with your brothers and sisters who have sinned against you in the trenches. That's how peace works. And again, that's counterintuitive. We we, we read about the history and we read about the, the drama and we think that does not feel peaceful. But God insists, this is my paradigm of peace. You having peace with God and you getting his peace and wielding that in the lives of the people around you, those very real people. So again, think about Joseph and his brothers. Obviously, they have history His brothers, they very clearly are still wrestling with guilt and shame over what they've done. They don't just forget about the fact that they sold their brother into slavery. When they're in Goshen, they're still thinking about what they did, and it still bothers them. And Joseph has to continuously uh, remind them, I'm not holding this against you. I'm not keeping a record of wrongs. I have forgiven you, and there is this commitment to continuing on in this very real, very rigorous relationship. And what you have to understand when you read the Bible is that God's telling you this story primarily because these are the people of the Lord of peace, right? These aren't just miscellaneous stories, you know, meant to teach you a lesson. It's it's the story of God, the Lord of peace, pursuing wretched sinners to save them, to bring them into reconciled relationship with himself, and then to to build that paradigm of peace in their real lives amidst their communities, their relationships with one another. And as you wrestle with that, inevitably you will ask this question, how how can this be? Like drill down into this this paradigm of peace, get into the depths of it, and you you will have this question, how can it be? Considering our Flagrant defiance of God. How can we have peace with him? And considering the wretchedness and the wreckage of our earthly relationships, how can we have peace with each other? And the answer is in verse 18. How does it work? The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. It would be so easy to read this last sentence and say, okay, letter's over, moving on. Don't do that. Marinate in this very common word grace and, and embrace what it means. Let this last sentence of this letter impact you because it is huge. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ is not sentiment. It's not just a, 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 you know, a nice sounding way to sign off a letter. It's a substantive fact. The, the, the way we have peace with God is because God shows us amazing grace. He is the God of grace. That's how come we can have peace with God. The way we can have peace in our earthly relationships is because God's grace is amazing. And we run everything in our lives through this grid of God's amazing grace. So because God's grace is real, His unmerited, undeserved, unconditional love, because that is primary, we have freedom to wrestle with God and enter his rest and receive his peace. And because God's grace is real, we can embrace the mystery, because it is a mystery, of experiencing God's peace amidst the complexities and the rigors and messiness of our life together as a community. That's what it means to be adopted by the Lord of peace and to experience his peace on a day-to-day basis. Let me pray for us. Jesus, we thank you for your peace. It would be really easy for us to hear the words, grace and peace, and not give them a second thought. But I'm asking you right now, God, to provoke us and compel us, not just to give those words a second thought, but that those words would be so lodged in our minds and in our souls that we would think about them all the time. We would would run every conversation we have with our spouse or our children or our neighbors or our friends through this paradigm of the amazing grace we have been shown in Christ alone. That has to flavor and inform everything about our lives. And that's the way we will experience the fruit of the Spirit. All that love and joy, the peace, the patience, the kindness, the gentleness, the goodness, faithfulness, and self-control, that all flows from savoring our our Lord, who is the Lord of peace. And we pray this in His name. Amen.